if you knew that the Lord was going to take you home to heaven tomorrow, how would you live the last 24 hours of life on earth? I dare say that not many of us would wake up Monday morning and go to the office. Most of us would spend those fleeting moments with family and friends. We might go to that place that we always love to visit. We might do that one thing on our bucket list that we thought we'd never be able to do. Maybe we would empty the savings account and purchase that one item that we've worked a lifetime to receive. Still others of us would come one more time to this sanctuary. We would boldly have gospel conversations with family and friends, strangers, people who do not yet know Jesus as Savior and Lord. We might just travel down memory lane, thanking those spiritual giants in our lives, individuals who've been so instrumental in our faith pilgrimage. If you knew that the Lord was going to take you to heaven tomorrow, how would you spend the last 24 hours of life on earth? How we would spend the last 24 hours tells us a great deal of how we need to spend these 24 hours. If it means that much to you on the last day, then it probably ought to mean that much to you on this day. Today we come to the conclusion of a four-part sermon series simply entitled Elijah, A Story of Faithfulness. When we catch up with the prophet, he's living out his last day. He's living it in a blaze of glory. This morning I invite you to take a Bible and turn to 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As together we examine 2 Kings chapter 2, I'll begin at verse 1. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, but do not speak of it. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men of the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? 
Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, not. And as we were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah. He went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord? The God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching, they said the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. Elijah dodged death. I've been told there are two inevitabilities in life. One is death and the other is paying taxes. Apparently, it would appear that Elijah avoided both. The events of the end of his life leave him in rare company. In all of human history, there have only been two men who have not tasted death. The first is Enoch. The second is the man named Elijah. Enoch's story is told as early as Genesis chapter 5. The details are pretty scarce. It simply says that Enoch walked with the Lord and then he was no more, for the Lord had taken him away. The details for Elijah are far more dramatic. Elijah is swept up into the heavens in a whirlwind as he's riding in a chariot that's on fire being pulled by horses that are on fire. You talk about a dramatic departure. That's the one that Elijah had. As I stop and think about it, I realize that Elijah's the last saint to experience such a dramatic, dynamic departure as this until the saints that are still left alive on the day that Jesus returns. For on that great glorious day when Jesus splits that eastern sky and he comes, all those who are alive in Christ, they'll be caught up, they'll be swept up, they'll be raptured up to meet him in the air. And oh, what a glorious day that will be. It is true that the end of Elijah's life is quite intriguing. But the events that lead up to this final event is pretty interesting as well. It would seem that everybody, including Elijah, knew that this was his last day. That today the Lord was going to take him in a whirlwind up to the heavens. Everybody knew this. And what makes it so fascinating is that Elijah's not sick. He's not on his deathbed. He's not suffering in decline or death. He's not fizzling and fading like a sparkler on the 4th of July. No, at this point of his life, he still has plenty of life to live, still strong, still having a lot of vim and vigor. 
And yet he lives his last day like he's lived every other day, faithful to the Lord. The subtitle of this four-part sermon series is a story of faithfulness. And most certainly, the story of Elijah is a story of God's faithfulness to his prophet. For at every step, at every turn, God has been faithful unto the prophet Elijah. Yet it's also a story about Elijah's faithfulness unto God. Oh, sure, Elijah had his peaks and valleys. Everybody does. You do, I do. We all have our ups and our downs. But Elijah was one who was constantly faithful unto the Lord. He boldly stood before King Ahab and gave the word of God that had been given unto him, this word of judgment, because Ahab had led the Israelites into idolatry, bowing the knee to that false god Baal. Elijah obediently then went to Zarephath, that place of refining, that place of testing, and he was obedient unto every word of God that came to him. Elijah victoriously stood on top of Mount Carmel. He was used of God to decisively show that the Lord is the one true God of Israel. He single-handedly defeated 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Yet he also had some valleys. It was the same guy named Elijah who spiraled down into a tailspin of depression just at the few choice words of that wicked woman, Jezebel. He sulked under the broom tree. He asked God to assist in a divine homicide. He also blamed God for his own depressed condition, saying that this was God's fault, not his own. Yeah, he's had peaks and he's had valleys. But so have you, so have I. I've told you before that biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. You and I do not look into the pages of scripture and find individuals who show us how we ought to live, but rather we look into the pages of scripture and we find individuals who show us how we actually live, the warts and all. We find people that look like us. We only have one model. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. When we look into the pages and we see other biblical characters, they just reveal who you are and who I am, how you live and how I live. We all have peaks and valleys. And yet through it all, God is faithful. Certainly the story of Elijah is a story of faithfulness. Certainly your story is to be a story of faithfulness. Whenever I read this story, whenever I think about this biblical character, this is the conclusion that I reach. We ought to strive to be profoundly faithful to the one who is perfectly faithful to us. Elijah lived his life striving to be profoundly faithful to the one who was perfectly faithful unto him. The biblical author sets the scene. On that day that the Lord was about to take Elijah to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were making their way from Gilgal. Now, I've got to be honest with you. For years, I've had a difficult time distinguishing Elijah and Elisha. Their names sound so much alike, don't they? I wish God would have done me a favor. I wish he would have named one of them Fred and the other one Jack. 
but they sound so much alike that it's sometimes hard for us to distinguish one from the other. But Elijah, he's the one who is the mentor. Elisha, he's the one who's the protege. This dynamic duo had been together for quite some time. In fact, they formed a powerful partnership in ministry. But it got to be the point when everybody knew that the day had come for Elijah to be taken home to heaven. The biblical author tells us that they leave Gilgal. Now, Elijah must know that his ultimate destination is the Jordan. I mean, that's where he's going to stand on Jordan's stormy banks and cast a wishful eye, and he's going to be taken over to the other side, proverbially speaking. So he knows that his ultimate destination is the Jordan River. And it would have been quite simple for the Lord to tell Elijah, go out the south gate of Gilgal, turn left, go eastward, and you'll run right into the Jordan River. But instead, the Lord takes Elijah on a zigzag tour. If, if you look at the text and if you look at a map of the ancient world, they go from Gilgal and they don't go east towards the Jordan, they go west towards Bethel. And then once they get west towards Bethel and they do what needs to be done there, then they go southeast to Jericho. And then once they do the business in Jericho, then and only then do they go to the Jordan River. I've been told that the shortest distance between two lines, is two points is a straight line. But in this case, the shortest distance between two points is a zigzag. I mean, the Lord zigzagged Elijah and Elisha all over in order to ultimately get them to the Jordan River. And I have to ask myself the question, why? I've always been taught and told that there are no throwaway comments in the Bible. There are no details that are just meaningless. Everything is stuffed with significance. So since that's true, I've got to ask myself, why did the Lord take Elijah on this zigzag tour? He easily could have taken him on a short trip from Gilgal to the Jordan River, but instead he takes him from Gilgal to Bethel, from Bethel to Jericho, from Jericho then on to the Jordan. Why? I think there are at least three reasons. One could be historical, another could be theological, and the third could just be personal. I think there are at least three reasons of why God does this for Elijah. Historically, what God does is he takes Elijah and enables him to retrace the original steps of Israel as they're going into the promised land. He retraces the steps that his forefathers had taken. It's like a spiritual pilgrimage for him. He retraces the steps and he travels the same path and the same road that his forefathers had traveled as they came up out of Egypt and into the promised land. So they went to Bethel and then to Jericho and to the Jordan. I think what God is doing is he is reminding the prophet of his place in cosmic history. You've been told what I've been told, that history is his story. And Elijah had a significant role in his story. He had a significant role in history, and so do you. And I think what God is doing is he's allowing the prophet to retrace these steps to say, hey, you've had a significant role, but you're part of something far greater than yourself. My friend, you do realize that the religion that you hold, the, the faith that possesses you, it didn't begin five years ago, 25 years ago, 65 years ago when you accepted Christ. 
No, you have entered into something that has its origin in eternity past. And it will not find its fulfillment until eternity future. You are part of something that's far greater than yourself. And you have a significant role to play. I've heard it said it's not by accident that you're here. You're here on purpose and for a purpose. I think somebody said that before. And I'm convinced that every person has a significant role to play in the cosmic plan of God's history. He has a purpose to fulfill and a plan to promote. And you are part of that. Now, when you hear that, you've got to guard yourself against one of two temptations. And the two two temptations are the two temptations of the extremes. To think of yourself more highly than you ought. Or to think of yourself more lowly than you ought. I've met Christians who think of themselves too lowly. Oh, I'm I'm nobody. I'm just the scum of the earth. I'm, I'm, I'm not anybody important. And to that individual, I want to say... Don't ever say that again. Yes, you are important. You are made in the very image of God. The Imago Dei has been stamped upon you. You have intrinsic value because God made you and God doesn't make any junk. So don't ever say, I'm the scum of the earth. Don't ever say, I'm a nobody. Oh, yes, you are. Don't think of yourself too lowly. But also don't think of yourself too highly. You and I know individuals and their ego cannot even fit into the sanctuary. They think of themselves as if they are God's gift to everything. And you see those individuals and you think to yourself, watch out, because pride comes before the fall. So we ought not think of ourselves too highly and we ought not think of ourselves too lowly, but let's think of ourselves the way God thinks of us. We have a significant role to play in his story. So he takes Elijah on this zigzag tour just to remind him of the original steps of the movement of Israel into the promised land. There's also a theological reason, I think, Because these three cities are three very important cities. It was believed that these three cities housed three significant schools of prophets. A school of prophet could be likened to a seminary of today. There in Gilgal and Bethel and Jericho, there were three schools of prophets. That's that's where the preacher boys went to learn how to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. And I think that it's very intentional that the Lord takes Elijah on this tour to these three ancient cities on purpose because he has something to say, a word of encouragement, a word of instruction to these millennial prophets who are about to burst onto the scene just like Elijah did, about to burst onto the scene and stand up and speak for the very voice of God. There's significance in that, my friends, because ours is a faith that must be successfully passed on to the next generation. We have a responsibility, and dare I say an obligation. We have an obligation to pass the good news of the gospel on to the generations that follow us. We cannot give up on any of those generations no more than our parents or grandparents gave up on us. We must do our very best to pass on with success and accuracy the baton of faith to the next generation. Christianity is one generation away from extinction, someone has said. And because that is a reality that we have a responsibility to invest in the lives of our students and our children. And we need to do everything possible to give them the opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel and respond in genuine faith. But even with all that being said, it was Chuck Swindoll who accurately reminds us that God is never left shorthanded. 
God always has a succession plan. He always has somebody in place. The missionary may die, but the mission lives on. Because for a long time now, we've realized that Elisha has been tapped as a successor to Elijah. We've known that since 1 Kings chapter 19. Here we are in 2 Kings chapter 2. We've also known that the Lord has reserved 7,000 in Israel who've never bowed the knee to Baal. This thing is not on extinction. This thing is not on its last leg. The devil is not going to get the upper hand. The remnant is always in place. God says, I've got 7,000 who have never bowed the knee to Baal. And here, Elijah makes this zigzag tour and he goes to these three ancient cities, very significant, because he goes to these three schools of prophets to say, hey, I am passing the baton of faith to the next generation of prophets. I think there's a very personal third reason too. These cities were significantly symbolic. Significantly symbolic, not just for Israel, but also for Elijah. And I want to suggest they're also significantly symbolic for you and for me. He first took him to Gilgal. Gilgal, historically, uh, was known as a place of worship for Israel. When Joshua led the people across the Jordan River, as soon as they crossed and they were about to enter into the promised land, he ordered them to stop and to hold a worship service. Joshua got 12 stones, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, got those 12 stones out of the Jordan River. They constructed an altar unto the Lord and Gilgal was one of the first places of worship for Israel. And historically, Gilgal's always been important as a place of worship. Think about Elijah's ministry. Why was he called into ministry? What was the focus of his ministry? It was to correct idolatry. The Israelites had forsaken God. They were bowing the knee to Baal. And their king Ahab was leading them in this. And God brought this redneck from the sticks, Elijah, to come and to say, thus saith the Lord. His whole ministry was based on accurate worship. So worship was very important to Elijah. It was very personal unto him. But Gilgal is a special place and it's a unique place because worship is tricky, isn't it? It's never a question of will we worship. The question is what will we worship? That's true of us. That was true of them. There will come a day in Israel's history where Gilgal is not the place of worship unto God. It's the place of worship unto pagans. So future prophets, people like Hosea and Amos, they will say, and I quote, go to Gilgal and you'll sin even more. Because Gilgal had become that place of pagan worship, a place that was reserved in all of its purity, a place that was set aside for worship unto a holy God. It had become prostituted. It had been used as pagan idolatry. And so this was also a reminder for Elijah that this place of worship was central unto his life. My friends, let me tell you that worship unto God is central to your existence. You've got to go to Gilgal from time to time and you've got to be careful. Make sure that what you worship is that you're worshiping God and not some idol that's been crafted and made in the image of our Lord. You've got to make sure that you're worshiping God and not some creation of God. So we've got to be very diligent to worship the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength as not to bow 
to the idol of money or success or pride or power or even our children, our grandchildren. We've got to be very careful that we use Gilgal at the right way to worship God. I think that Elijah went to Gilgal because worship was so central in his life. It ought to be central in our life. He went to Bethel. Bethel is that place of prayer. Bethel is a compound Hebrew word, bet El. Bet meaning house of, El meaning Elohim, God. It was the house of God. As early as Genesis chapter 12, it is Abraham who builds an altar to God at Bethel. And Bethel was a place of prominent prayer in the life of Israel. And certainly in the life of Elijah, prayer was paramount. Elijah prayed in Zarephath and the boy's life returned to him. Elijah prayed on top of Mount Carmel and fire fell from the heavens. It seems as if you turn every page in Elijah's story and you find the prophet praying. And you and I, we ought to be a people of prayer. This is important to Jesus, right? This is what Jesus says. You, you have made this into a den of liars. This is to be a house of prayer under my Lord. And so you and I need to pray for it is the power and the catalyst of our power and passion unto God. So Elijah has to go to Bethel. It's a reminder of the importance of prayer. He third goes to Jericho. Why does he go to Jericho? Jericho is that place of battle. The whole concept of Jericho, the city of Jericho, it stands tall in the Israeli military textbook. Jericho is to the Hebrews what D-Day is to Americans. It's that monumental victory. You remember the story, don't you? The Israelites go up to Jericho. It's a fortified city. The walls reach the heavens. They come to their leader, Joshua, and they say, Joshua, what are we going to do? How are we going to take down the walls? He says, let me go talk to God. And so he goes and talks to God, and he gets the, 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 the strategy, the divine plan, and he comes back and says, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to circle the city once a day for six days. That's it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Anything more? Nothing more. We're not going to take any weapons? No weapons. That's it. That's all we're going to do. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. All we're going to do is go and circle the city once a day. That's all you got. That's all I've got. Okay. So they do it for six days. On the seventh day, Joshua says, we're going to circle the city seven times. And then after we circle it seven times, we're going to shout to the Lord. That's it. That's it. God's going to give us the victory. Going to give us the victory because we circle it seven times and shout to him? Yes, he's going to give us the victory because he is victorious. He is the one who gets victory in battle. So they go and they circle the city of Jericho seven times. And on the seventh trip, they shout unto the Lord. And what happens? Those walls come tumbling down. Because in Jericho, God always gets the victory. I think that God took the prophet to Jericho to remind him that in his life, he had had some battle scars. There have been some places of battle for Elijah. He battled in a very public way, the pagans on Mount Carmel. He battled in a very private way, his own demons on Mount Horeb. 
And Elijah had the battle scars. And he knew that God is victorious. Some of us need to go to Jericho today. We just need to be reminded that God is victorious. Because some of you, you know, you know the battle of addiction. You know the battle of cancer. You know the battle of, of failed marriages. You, you know the battle of toxic thoughts. You know the battle of struggles at work. You know what it is to struggle and to fight. You know the battles in your family and with your friends. You know what it is to be in Jericho. And God always gets the victory in Jericho. I heard an old, old story. How a savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary and saved a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, his precious blood atoning. Then I repented of my sin and I won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming love. He loved me before I knew him and all my love is doing. He plunged me to victory beneath that cleansing flood. I'm here to tell you that God is victorious in Jericho. And I think that's exactly why God takes the prophets to Jericho. Because God always, always gets the victory. He takes him on a zigzag tour. I think he does it on purpose. Go from Gilgal, that place of worship. Then go to Bethel, that place of prayer. Then go to Jericho, that place of battle. And now you're ready to go to Jordan. The scripture says that every place they went, the prophet said to the protege, stay here. I got to go to the next city. And Elisha said to his master, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I'm not leaving your side. Every city they went to, that school of prophets pulled Elisha aside. Hey, you do know that today God's going to take your master away. Yes, I know. Keep quiet about it. Shut your mouth. Pipe down. He says this every single time. Why? Because he's close to Elijah. He loves Elijah. He knows the pain he's going to experience when Elijah is taken from him. When a loved one is taken from you, it's painful. And it ought to be. Nothing wrong with that. It's not that we are mad at God. It's not that we grieve as a people without hope, but we're sad, and we should be. Sadness is a God-given emotion. The tears that stream down your face, they're liquid love. Go ahead, let them shower. You know that uh, if that loved one in the casket's a believer in Christ, you don't say goodbye to that person. You just say, I'll see you later. Because you have the promise to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I know what's going to happen, Elisha says. Doesn't mean I got to like it. So just pipe down. Be quiet. We've got some business to do. We've got some things to tend to. They go on the zigzag tour. They get through Jericho. They're on their way to the Jordan River. 50 of the prophets from Jericho, they come, but they can only come so far. They've now gotten to the place where only Elijah and Elisha can walk. They get to the Jordan. 
Elijah takes off his outer cloak, rolls it up like a scroll, and strikes the water. The water splits to the right and to the left. And just as the Lord did through Moses, so he now does through Elijah. Part of the water so the two of them could cross on dry ground. They make their way to the other side. And Elijah looks at Elisha. And he says, what do you want for me to do for you before I'm taken from you? And Elisha says, I want a double dose of what you got. Now, technically what he says is, I want to inherit a double portion of your spirit. The double portion, that's reminiscent of the Mosaic law that the firstborn son was to receive a double portion of the inheritance. But Elisha's not talking about money here. He's not talking about stuff. He's not talking about goods. He says, I want a double portion of your spirit. In the Hebrew mindset, the spirit was the essence, the the, the character, the power of a person. He says, I want a double dose of what you got. My friend, I wonder, do you have any Elijahs in your life? Do you have any spiritual giants in your life? People that you look to and you say, you know what, I want a double dose of what you got. I mean, I, I watch how You worship the Lord, and and you worship like nobody's business. I I watch how you're eager in evangelism, that you're bold in sharing the gospel. I watch how you're faithful to God on the good days and the bad days. It's undeniable that you love the Lord. And I just want a double dose of what you got. Do you have any Elijahs in your life? Do you have any people that you look up to? You should. You need them. I need them. We need individuals that we look up to and say, yeah, that's my Elijah. That's the one in human form that I can look to and say, hey, that person is showing me how to be profoundly faithful to the one who is perfectly faithful unto us. I need some Elijahs. Do you have one? Do you have an Elijah? Spiritual giant? That you would say, I want a double dose of what you got. Let me also ask you this. Do you have any Elishas in your life? Do you have any people looking to you, saying to you, I want a double dose of what you got? Maybe somebody's saying to you, I see how you live. I see your joy and your excitement and your enthusiasm, your contentment in life, your satisfaction in the Savior. I see how you live out the Christian life. And maybe you have somebody looking up to you saying, I want a double dose of what you got. Do you have any Elishas? You should. Because we ought to live our life in such a way that somebody looks up to us to say, I want to live like you live. I want a double dose of what you got. Is there anybody in the next generation, wherever you fall, whatever generation you're in, is there anybody in the generation beneath you who's looking to you to say, listen, I want you to tell me, how do you have so much joy that the world can't take away? How do you have peace that surpasses all understanding? I want a double dose of what you got. Is there anybody in the next generation that's coming up that looks to you to say, hey, I want what you've got? My friend, we need to have an Elijah and we need to have some Elishas in our lives. You say, pastor, how do we do that? How do we live in such a way that other people look to us And say, I want what you've got. I'll tell you how. You strive to be profoundly faithful 
to the one who is perfectly faithful to us. You live that way, you'll have some Elijahs and you'll have some Elishas. No sooner had Elijah, uh, Elisha asked this of his master, that the master said, uh, if you stick with me and you see me as I go up into the heavens, then what you ask for will be granted to you. No sooner had that been spoken that the wind kicked up, a mighty whirlwind, a chariot of fire being pulled by horses of fire, separated the two prophets of God. And Elisha stood there and his heart was pounding out of his chest. His eyes were as big as saucers. There was a permanent lump that took up residence in his throat. He said, my father, my father. And Elijah was gone. What now? He turns back around to go back across the Jordan. The waters had receded and come back together. So he did what his master had taught him to do. He took that cloak that had fallen from that chariot. He took the cloak, the mantle, the the outer garment of Elijah and he rolled it up like a scroll. And with those 50 prophets watching with bated breath, Elisha tapped the water of the Jordan River (laughs) and he crossed on dry ground. See, my friends, uh, you're always going to have people watching you. How are you going to respond? How are you going to live when tragedy comes at your house and death sweeps away one that is loved by you? You're always going to have a crowd of 50 prophets, 50 people, 50 millennials, 50 individuals. They're looking to you saying, hey, what are you going to do? And Elisha just does what his master would have done. That's pretty good advice. You and I just need to do what our master Jesus would do in every situation. Elisha crosses on dry ground and they declare that the spirit of Elijah rested on Elisha. This is not the last time that you and I see Elijah. In fact, in in Malachi chapter four, which by the way is the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, another prophet of God, quotes the Lord as saying, before the Lord comes, I will send Elijah. In the Gospels, Jesus, who is the Lord, identifies John the Baptist as the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist looked like Elijah, dressed like Elijah, talked like Elijah, acted like Elijah. Many people believe that Elijah is one of those two unnamed witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. That's unclear. What's crystal clear is that Elijah showed up on the mountain of transfiguration. In the gospels, it tells us that Jesus went up on this mountain and there uh, there beside him were Elijah and Moses. Moses, symbolic of the law. Elijah, symbolic of the prophets. Both of them were there because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And they're talking about the upcoming exodon, the uh, departure that'll take place in Jerusalem. The event of Elijah's life here in 2 Kings chapter 2 always points to something greater. There's there's something else. There's something more. I think it's pointing unto Christ because certainly Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He died on a cross for your sins and for mine. 
He was nailed to a tree. He gave up his ghost. He was placed to a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, that Jewish carpenter got up out of the grave. I don't know about you, but I'm with him, right? I mean, if he could get up out of the grave and that who was dead is now alive, I'm with him. And he came forth and he conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. The angel said to the women, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He got up just like he said. And then about 40 days later, Jesus is about to be taken up into the heavens. He's standing there on a mountain and there he is caught up. He's swept up a whirlwind. In fact, he's there in a, in a, in a, in a cloud and he's being taken up into the heavens and the angels speak to the gawking Galileans. Why do you stand there gazing up into the sky for this Jesus who was swept up and taken from you? He will come back in the very same way. Now go be about his business. You be busy doing what he wants you to do until he comes back. You sit there today and you ask the question, well, what does he want me to do? What am I supposed to be doing? What does Jesus want me to do until the day he comes so that I may have a dynamic, dramatic departure? What am I supposed to be doing? I'll tell you what you're supposed to be doing. Strive to be profoundly faithful to the one who is perfectly faithful to us. Be profoundly faithful in scripture reading and prayer. Be profoundly faithful in evangelism and generosity. Be profoundly faithful in ministry and mission. Be profoundly faithful in the workplace and at the home place. Be profoundly faithful to your spouse and to your children. Be profoundly faithful in the church and outside the church. You, my friend, are called to be profoundly faithful to the one who is perfectly faithful unto us. And when we live that way, We'll go out in a blaze of glory. Hey, listen. If you knew that the Lord was going to take you to heaven tomorrow, how would you spend the last 24 hours of your life? And I'm just convinced if it's that important in the last 24 hours, it ought to be that important in this 24 hours. So you leave this place being profoundly faithful to the one who is perfectly faithful unto us. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Father, I pray that there are those listening to my voice who accept you as Savior. I pray that there are others of us who have accepted you as Savior and Lord, but today we just need to fall on our face before you and we need to strive to be profoundly faithful in everything that we do. Lord, have your way in this invitation. Uh, Connect the dots. Let the light bulb and lightning bolts go off in our minds and in our spirits. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.